0: Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Moa Spode, and we're talking about aerosol descent um, after both geoengineering and volcanic aerosol injection. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So um, we, uh, we've had a bit of a hiatus on the Review of 2 podcast. I've not been uh, here much due to uh, panic about the onset of World War Three, which has seemingly been deferred, but we can only hope. It's good to be back. I have to say that I was quite surprised when you turn up. I didn't know what gender Amoa was. And I I had it in my head for some random reason that you were, in fact, male. And this is not the case. You are female, which uh, was uh, quite distracting when I um, I turned up. I was like, all my priors about this meeting have been overturned in just a flash. So we are talking today about aerosol descent. So if you could start by giving us the title of your paper, that would be very helpful.
1: So the title of the paper is "Springtime Stratospheric Volcanic Aerosol Impact on Mid-Latitude Cirrus Clouds."
0: Okay, so let's break this down to the basics. So even the humanities people on this podcast can understand what we're on about. So cirrus clouds are high, thin, wispy clouds, right? Yes. And they no- noted for being quite heat-trapping because they're they're quite they're, penet- they're quite penetrable for optical radiation, so they let a lot of incoming sunlight down in the visible and the near-infrared spectra. The tops of the clouds are very, very cold, and so they don't radiate a lot of heat back to space. So those generally are warming clouds, as opposed to the thicker, whiter clouds that are boundary layer clouds, which have, relatively speaking, quite warm tops, and therefore tend to reflect a lot of sunlight back to space and and they're predominantly cooling so these removing these cirrus clouds is the basis of the cirrus stripping technology right or cirrus cloud thinning and anything that we can do that tends to remove cirrus clouds will tend to make the world a bit cooler as opposed to Uh, Boundary layer clouds, where if we were to remove them, not then we want to, it would make the world rather warmer. That's the basics, right? Yes, that's true. Okay. So if you could go and give us a bit of an intro into the stratosphere. Now, I guess a lot of people on the podcast will understand the stratosphere, but we perhaps need a bit more detail about the the mechanics of the stratosphere and where it is and, and how it works just like we did in the last version of this recording, which we had to abandon due to your rubbish internet connection. So if you basically repeat everything that we've recorded already, that'd be really helpful.
1: Okay. So um, the stratosphere is the layer above the troposphere where, where we live and weather and most things that we know about the atmosphere happen. And uh, the stratosphere is uh, is separated from the troposphere by the tropopause. And the stratosphere actually is not kind of the same altitude everywhere. So, in the tropics where we have a lot of convection, the stratosphere actually starts higher up in the atmosphere compared to mid latitudes of so the poles. Uh, and when uh, we talk about the stratosphere, we sometimes mention the lowermost stratosphere, which is kind of the lowest layers close to the trop- poles, where there is a bit more interaction between the, the troposphere and the stratosphere. Uh, and in general, we have kind of an upward motion in the tropics, uh, in the stratosphere, uh, and then the air kind of spreads out towards the poles and then it starts to descend at kind of mid-latitudes and towards the poles.
0: So when we've got particulates that are in the atmosphere, uh, in the stratosphere, because of uh, volcanic aerosol injection or geoengineering, how do the, these particles get out? Is it that is it they fall through the air mass or is it the air mass itself that moves predominantly? I wonder if you can go into a bit more depth about that.
1: Well, essentially, it depends a little bit on particle size. So the larger particles, which are maybe larger than a few micrometers, they have kind of a enough grid, gravitational settling velocity so that they can kind of fall through the air. Uh, but for the smaller particles, the ones that are smaller than maybe one micrometer, they generally, they aren't like heavy enough to actually fall. So they more just follow the air flow uh, and would then sort of get transported towards the poles and and mainly be transported into the troposphere at mid latitudes and high latitudes.
0: So we don't like small measurements on this show so if you could give us a kind of kitchen equivalent of what these particles are like are they like a grain of dust are they like a smoke particle are they like the kind of cloud that you get off your shower how big are they? Mm -hmm.
1: So, I mean, the, the large particles would be uh, the ones that are a few micrometers, that would be dust particles. And the particles that are below one micrometer, they would be smaller than dust particles. They can be kind of tiny, tiny soot particles, but they're, you know, they're not visible to the human eye. So we can't really see them. But so they're, um... more, they're
0: more like cigarette smoke. So the steam in your shower, you can see individual particles, right? But smoke, you can't really see individual particles in smoke. It just looks like a haze, right? So the smaller particles are more like cigarette smoke. And the larger particles might be like bathroom steam or the dust in your shower, right? Yeah, or bathroom steam like in this, your shower, yeah. or the, or the du- dust in your house. Yeah. Okay, okay. great. So, do you want to start giving us a précis of what you discovered in your paper?
1: So we discovered um, what well, we actually did a, a study previously to this one, where we looked at we had airplane measurements from the lowermost part of the stratosphere in the northern hemisphere, and they were collecting particles onto um, to filters. You got your own.
0: Has your university got its own private jet? No,
1: this is a, uh, a Richard product called the Caribbean. It's actually, uh, there was a measurement container installed on a commercial Airbus. So on some of the flights, they would take a lot of instruments along, and there was like an air inlet underneath the aircraft. Uh, so that would collect particles in the lowermost part of the stratosphere, and uh, the particles would then be taken to Lund University, and they were analysed in, in a particle accelerator for which elemental compounds that they consist of. So they could see, you know, if we have a
0: lot of sulfate particles, for example,
1: through this method.
0: So um, That's pretty cool. And I knew nothing about that experiment. Where can people find out about that?
1: <laughs> well, uh, they could go onto the Caribbean website, but um, this project is no longer, or the particles is no longer being collected and analyzed here in Lund. We ran out of funding for that, unfortunately. That's but yeah, straight. the Caribbean platform the web page yeah. is quite
0: informative. You'll have to put in in the notes that we put on this podcast. Yeah, um, we do actually put we do actually put links. So when you click on the show title, you get the show. But equally, you can scroll down and there's like a reading list for people that are non lazy listeners to do some uh, wider research. So what was the name of this? Was it called Caribbean or something? How do yeah. you spell that?
1: Um, with the C, like the Caribbean, like
0: <laughs> like the, the Caribbean, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. All right. Well, you can send me a link to that, and we'll, in the um, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, about yeah. This, so they um... collected
1: these particles in the lowermost stratosphere, and they saw that during years after volcanic eruption, there was more sulfate particles there, which makes sense. Uh, And then uh, they saw also that these particles were making their way into the upper troposphere. And they asked me if I could look at, because I was working with satellite data of clouds. So they asked me if I could look at satellite data of clouds and see whether we could see a shift in these cirrus clouds. Were they affected by the particles? So what we saw was that there was a decreased reflectance of the clouds, of the cirrus clouds, during these periods when we had higher sulfate loading in in the lower stratosphere. So we thought we wanted to investigate that a bit further because these were only like from the northern hemisphere and they were very, you know, it was only one satellite data. So I applied well, for, for how, funding.
0: How did, can you, I just want to put you up on something you said earlier, yep. so you were sort of saying that you, you found a, what was going on with these clouds. But that, that sounds to me to be very challenging because these clouds, the clouds are quite noisy, right? So yeah. the, the clouds change a lot. So how do you actually work out that the clouds are really changing and not just kind of wobbling around in intensity as they usually do?
1: well in uh, in this study uh, we used a uh, we used data from a specific satellite instrument that looked at a specific uh, wavelength where cirrus clouds appear very nicely so essentially the this this satellite was very good at looking at specifically cirrus clouds and what we looked at was averages over so we looked at monthly averages of of the cirrus reflectance and compare that between different years where we looked at you know between years when we had a high aerosol loading the status and years yeah, i, when we I had get
0: I, I get the principle like i mean for example it's april or it was april a couple of weeks ago and april was a particularly dry month in the uk right so if you looked at one april and then you looked at the last april you might say hey something's happened that's made april really really dry but actually most of that or almost all of that is going to be just natural variation how do you mm. know what you're looking at is a real effect
1: i mean we took an average over i think it was four or five months each spring so there if you look at like the entire spring then you would usually get quite you know complete not completely the same weather patterns but you know there would be but essentially i mean the difference we saw between the years that uh, had you know higher volcanic sulfate was bigger than the difference between the different years essentially
0: so so you basically got a high signal to noise ratio. So even over a relatively short period of time, you could identify a shift. Mm. I mean, that's quite surprising because I think many people might think that these changes would be quite marginal and natural variability would be quite high. But what you're saying is that actually the the change is pretty big and pretty noticeable. And even over a relatively short time series, you can see quite a significant change in in what you're measuring right
1: yeah and i mean we 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 did see these changes in this previous study and we thought that it would be interesting to investigate further because it was one satellite study uh, and we wanted to confirm the results we got from that that's why that's why i kind of did the the study that we're talking about today or the paper that we're talking about today
0: okay so i'd like you to sort of Tell me a children's story about the life of a stratospheric aerosol particle. So, if you could go through and and describe it in 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 the most entertaining terms that would ensure a toddler gets a good night's sleep afterwards, this would be excellent because I I for one would be fascinated to hear this in full.
1: Well I mean the the life of an I mean it depends as well if it's a I suppose if it's a volcanic or if it's a geoengineering particles but essentially it would start out from from sulfuric acid you know, and even before that it would be SO2 so gas phase first going into the liquid phase and the particle could either form as like a new particle a few molecule, gas molecules lump together to form a particle or it could be that the gas is condensing onto an existing particle
0: but does um, it, does the gas, I mean, a lot of the time you have cloud condensation nuclei, right? I should be fine for not knowing this, but are the um, stratospheric aerosol particles condensing onto a cloud condensation nuclei or do they just form spontaneously in open air?
1: I mean, they can do both. The cloud condensation nuclei is actually a subset of aerosol particles that can initiate the cloud droplets. And in the stratosphere, we don't have clouds except for polar stratosphere clouds. So, but essentially, the gas that comes into the stratosphere can either condense onto already existing aerosol particles that are there, or they can form new aerosol particles. That's kind of the two options. That involves going from the gas phase to, to the but, liquid but, phase. Both of what these transitions. Are,
0: what are these particles that are in the stratosphere? I mean, are they, like, um, uh, are they like bits of dust or bacteria, or are they only kind of liquid phase?
1: um they are mainly liquid phase i would say i'm not a stratospheric aerosol expert so some people might object but yeah they are there's not much of bacteria and other stuff going on but there could be an aerosol particle that formed from sulfuric from so2 like a few minutes ago but there is also kind of some background aerosol in the stratosphere uh, and that comes from some species that for example are emitted from the ocean in the troposphere but in the troposphere, they don't react dim- very much.
0: Is that dimethyl sulfide?
1: Yeah, that's one of them. So, when, yeah, I thought you
0: know, D- DMS formed in the in the troposphere, but are you saying it actually forms in the stratosphere? If I misunderstood that?
1: No, they. I mean, they form in the troposphere, but one. But some of these compounds don't react very much in the troposphere. So once they, it's a gaseous compound in the troposphere. Once they reach the stratosphere, they can go to the liquid phase and start forming particles instead. <laughs> because the chemistry is very different in the stratosphere compared to the troposphere.
0: I thought that. Some, uh, dms particles formed in the troposphere but you set me straight on that not oh, something i learned i learned something every podcast so these particles then they sort of float around the stratosphere a bit and then they 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 fall down and you were saying that for the little ones it's the the movement of the air that makes them fall down and for the big ones it's the they sort of fall through the air rather than the air falling
1: yeah i mean they fall very slowly through the air so you could say that they kind of you know they also follow the air but they can fall a little bit more on the rocks
0: okay and then if i'm a stratospheric aerosol particle and then i get to the tropopause and then i sort of start falling through that what happens to me then
1: then well i mean there's a lot of things we don't know about this but what happens rather quickly in the troposphere to most aerosols is that they form a cloud droplet. Or, I mean, the the particles in the stratosphere can also start, you know, colliding with each other uh, so they could, you know, meet another stratospheric aerosol, collide with that one, and become bigger. And these things also happen once they reach the troposphere. But in the troposphere, we have clouds, and as soon as an aerosol particle... I mean, they can become a cloud droplet and then they can dry out or an ice crystal and they can dry out from that as well and become a particle again. So, but eventually so, so, they will be removed by precipitation once they reach so, the
0: droplets. So how me understand this? So my my understanding of this is that the stratosphere is very, very dry. And so the particles don't grow very quickly because no. there's not a lot of water. And high, high, the sulfuric acid is very hygroscopic, right? Yes. It attracts water. So if there is any water, then it's going to get attracted very aggressively onto these particles. And the reason mm-hmm. that doesn't happen much in the stratosphere is because the stratosphere itself is quite dry. Now, the troposphere generally isn't very dry. And so my understanding is that what happens as soon as these particles get down into the troposphere, they then start growing because they attract water onto them. Mm-hmm. And that sort of starts this kind of cloud droplet formation process. So how how near are the Sirius clouds to the to the tropopause. I mean, the cirrus clouds sort of basically the tropopause, or are they, mm. are they the particles have to fall down a mile or two before they get to those particles, um, or what how does it work?
1: Uh, the cirrus clouds are. They can even be like into the lower part of this, the stratosphere, even. But they would be at the tropopause. They would be just below it, and then a okay. few kilometers below, maybe as well. But essentially, so these,
0: these, these particles rain rain down into the cirrus clouds. So they almost immediately they come out of the stratosphere. if There are any cirrus clouds, then they hit these cirrus clouds almost straight away, right? So, talk me through that process. So, these do they can they form new new cirrus clouds where cirrus clouds weren't already, or can they only really adapt and amend existing cirrus clouds? How does that work?
1: Essentially, I don't think we really know, um, but
0: well, there are kind of theories kind of we were going to know because that's why we got in the show. So.
1: Yeah, no, but I mean, cirrus sulfate aerosols can definitely form cirrus clouds. So, if you have many kind of self, if you have sulfate aerosols. Uh, falling down and if it's kind of cold enough and the relative humidity is right then they can freeze all this like these solution droplets consist of water and so gas, and that's something that we term call like homogeneously formed serious clouds so you have many solution droplets that sort of freeze at the same time
0: um okay so term, me, they can form me, serious clouds. my understanding is that homogeneous clouds were were clouds where the, the they didn't need any nucleation right so exactly. they were just Okay, but surely if you've got stratospheric sulfur aerosols around, then you're going to have some nucleation, right?
1: Yeah, but when we're or talking it... about ice formation, and there's like there is the homogeneous formation of cloud droplets, but then there's also homogeneous and heterogeneous formation of ice crystals, and it's a little bit different. So when we're talking about ice crystals, then we're talking about homogeneous freezing. We're talking about the freezing of, of solution droplets, but we're talking about heterogeneous freezing when it comes to ice. That means we have to have a, a solid sub surface for the ice to start growing on so that's essentially the difference that when it comes to ice then heterogeneous means you have a particle which is in particle phase so solid phase not
0: liquid so so are um are cirrus clouds normally uh, are they are they normally ice clouds or do you have water-based cirrus clouds as well
1: no they're ice clouds
0: So they're always ice clouds everywhere is that right yeah okay so um this um this process, the, the droplets fall down and they they, they act on the cirrus cloud. So, my understanding of it is that when you have cirrus uh, clouds which are in uh, very wet air, then so you've got super saturated air with insufficient cloud concentra- concentration, condensation nuclei, get that right, cloud condensation nuclei. Then, what happens is that the, the droplets grow very, very fast because they're, they're the only thing that the water can condense on is these the odd droplets around and they have the effect of then relatively rapidly drying the air if you've got so you've got clean wet air then the individual cloud condensation nuclei dry aggressively the stratosphere and that's where the kind of value of serious cloud thinning comes from because you're quickly removing water from the this aerosol uh, from this layer that can form cloud aerosols right whereas mm. in 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 dustier air or air uh, where where you've got you haven't got the right conditions, then you can have the opposite effect. And I think that some of the studies that have been done have shown that cirrus clouds are extremely, extremely sensitive to the initial conditions for mm-hmm. cloud seeding. So you you end up – it's very hard to do cirrus cloud thinning as a geoengineering strategy because it's very hard to get the right conditions and to observe the right conditions before you start your intervention. And, and there's a big risk that you end up with the opposite effect of the one you want because instead of – Having big fat particles that fall out of the sky, you end up just creating more clouds that wouldn't have been there in the first place, right? Is, it, yeah. is Do I understand that correctly?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And because we don't know essentially whether the serious clouds form through heterogeneous freezing onto, for example, dust particles, or if they form through this freezing of just solution droplets. And if we add, uh, you know, dust particles or, uh, or geoengineering, like, you know, these, uh, sonic particles that you want for for serious modification, then if you add those to homogeneous deflation, then you will end up with fewer crystals, large crystals that fall down, the effect you want. But if you add that to you know, to a dustier environment, then you're just going to get more serious crystals and you're going to, you know, the clouds are going to stay for longer. So you get the actual opposite yeah. effect.
0: So so when you when you say that we don't know, I mean, we kind of do know, don't we? I think the problem comes about when we don't know on an individual cloud, right? That's the problem when you make an intervention. If you had a little drone flying around trying to adjust these clouds, then the drone, it's very hard to know in real time where the drone should go, right? That's my understanding of it
1: yeah but as well, like it was quite a long time. It was assumed that it was only homogeneous racing that was causing the serious clouds. but then there were some measurements where they started to look at residuals of ice crystals and seeing that there were like solid particles inside of them so kind of depends on you know where you have these ice nuclei present so if you have enough dust or perhaps even soot from aircraft traffic has been proposed as one of these ice nuclei then uh, you know if they are present then there will be heterogeneous nucleation, but if they aren't, then you will have homogeneous nucleation so it's true we don't uh, we don't know if there is enough of these particles uh to to make the cirrus cloud form through heterogeneous nucleation and we don't know where so it's basically so you, what
0: well, you said. well that's a really interesting aside so what you're saying is that there's at least a suspicion that a large proportion of the cirrus cloud budget could be influenced by aircraft.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, where you have a lot of the air traffic corridors. and there's I mean, more... surely
0: that'd be quite easy to spot because, I mean, like, you know where the aircraft go and you know, you know, particularly which hemisphere they go into, right? So, can, I mean, if, if, your, if your experiments are sensitive enough to pick up volcanoes, then surely the experiments are also sensitive enough to pick up whether it's aircraft or not, right?
1: Not really. I mean, because if you look at something from a satellite, you're not going to see, you know, which type of, of particles that we form on. And serious clouds are particularly hard to study because they're so thin, then they are harder for the satellites. to.
0: Surely what you'd have is a situation where, where the aircraft fly, you'd notice more particles. I mean, if you can spot the influence of volcanoes, surely you could spot the influence of aircraft also. Um.
1: Yeah, I suppose... You know, there are. They have perhaps been studies, but I don't. But I don't think that we are certain. Essentially, it's easier to kind of say, or I would say that that it was easier for us to say this is a year where we have a lot of uh, uh, volcanic eruptions or a lot of aerosol from volcanoes. But uh, but it's also because we looked at the aerosol particles when they were in the lowermost stratosphere where there aren't a lot of clouds. Once we get into the troposphere and we have the clouds, it's a lot harder to observe the aerosols because the clouds are. Reflecting more radiation and making aerosol observations harder. So in general, because the, the such particles would be in the upper troposphere, then then it is it's very hard to 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 study them because we also have the clouds present at the same time. Essentially.
0: Okay, so given us a pretty comprehensive background. So what I'd like to do now is get dig deep into the paper and what you found, because uh, yeah, otherwise we'll just talk about background forever and ever and ever <laughs> and never get to your paper.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, so in the paper, we, we studied the year from 2008 to 2019. And um, there has been a number of kind of smaller volcanic eruption or, or medium term. So they weren't as big as Pinatubo or anything that really perturbed the atmosphere, but they still had an impact. So we had a look at at how much they, like, you know, if if there was more aerosol present in the stratosphere, which we, Studied using satellites again this time. We did not use aircraft data. And then we would look at observations of cirrus clouds in the upper troposphere during the same periods and see, you know, if is there a correlation? Do they seem to, you know, and this time we looked at the ice water content of the cirrus clouds. We looked at the number concentration of crystals at different sizes and we looked at cloud fraction of cirrus clouds from a different satellite. So and uh, we try to cover kind of more. Could you
0: of, tell us what all of those things mean? Because, you know, they're familiar terms for you, but they, they won't be for <laughs>
1: Okay, so um, so the ice water content is generally just how much ice per sort of cubic centimetre of air, essentially. So in some clouds, we have a lot of ice, and then ice water content is higher, but in others, so it it's just, you know.
0: So what you're talking um, about, just to, be, just to be clear there, is that mm-hmm. ice water content, You're it's not the ratio between ice and liquid water. We're saying yeah. what, is the, what is the amount of water that's in the cloud, and we're in this kind of cubic centimeter there or whatever. Mm. It's, it's the amount of water that's there, but we're but it's the ice fraction that we're interested in.
1: Yeah, I mean it's essentially okay. we're not expecting any liquid at all, so it's essentially like how much air, you know, how much of the uh, this air parcel is, is ice and how much is, is air essentially. So, so it's more. Okay, great. Yeah. And what are um, the other
0: things that you the other? So we
1: looked at the talked? ice crystal concentration. So it's the same thing. Like within this little box of air, how many ice crystals do we have, essentially? And we can then look at different sizes. So how many large ice crystals do we have, and how many smaller ice crystals do we have? And this is something okay. that the satellite can can estimate through quite advanced measurements.
0: <laughs> and and the the uh, and the size distribution of particles. There's, is a profile of size is always the same? So you always get, for example, a normal distribution, but the uh, mean is shifted or do you have, uh, you know, completely different shapes of distributions in different circumstances?
1: Um, it is probably quite different, but when we try to measure, we usually represent them using one or more log-normal distributions. So something that isn't completely bell-shaped but a little bit skewed. But When we try to measure or model aerosols or cloud and ice crystal concentrations as well we usually use kind of one or two or maybe three or four modes and they are usually we use something called log normal modes. so they're not like a completely bell-shaped but they are rather like a little bit skewed onto one side
0: is that more like a gaussian distribution then yeah but
1: it's 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 a gaussian distribution that's a little bit has a longer tail on one side essentially
0: (laughs) Okay. And so can you talk about aerosol modes? Because this is one of the things that I would like people to think that I understand, but actually don't. <laughs>
1: um, aerosol modes, we have. We usually use four aerosol modes when we're talking about aerosol particles. So the largest one is we usually call coarse mode, which often contains sea salt and dust particles. We have the accumulation mode, which is uh, often centered around maybe 500 nanometers or slightly smaller. And they are called the accumulation mode because this is the particles that are kind of hardest to remove from the atmosphere. So they stay around longest. They accumulate.
0: Okay, so accumulation mode isn't called because the particles are formed by a process of accumulation, but they're 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 called accumulation mode because they don't drop out of the sky. They don't hang around,
1: Mm. right? They stick around for longest essentially. Especially in the troposphere, especially. And then we have the Eichen mode, which is even smaller maybe around 50 nanometers, and they were named after a scientist called Eitkin. And then we have the nucleation mode, which is uh, the particles that have been recently formed from gas phase molecules lumping themselves together. So they are really small. They have a size of a few nanometers only.
0: Let you talk uninterrupted without my stupid questions for a full five minutes about what you found in the paper. And uh, uh, you can relax without any intru- interruptions to me. I'm just going to tune into you like Radio 4 and go to sleep.
1: Okay. So what we did investigate in the paper was whether these, you know, whether we saw any changes to the really series class. That was time
0: for you to freeze.
1: <laughs> no. You're gone. you I gone. Am I gone?
0: You're still gone.
1: I'm still gone. I can you? hear you. am i back
0: yeah you right okay you froze for ages there i don't know that was okay. me or, no, I, okay yeah um, we so, we'll, we'll just start start again so i'll give you the intro again so i'm gonna okay. i'm gonna switch my mic off for five minutes and let you have a good chunter on about your paper without any interruptions from me just like i'm listening to radio four and relaxing so uh off you go five minutes and tell us exactly what you found
1: okay so we looked at this uh Years where we had some moderate-sized volcanic eruptions, and we looked at how much aerosols do we have in the lowermost part of the stratosphere, and what are the properties of the cirrus clouds. So what we saw was that in the northern hemisphere, during periods when we had more sulf- sulfate aerosols uh, in the in the lowermost stratosphere, the cirrus clouds they had uh, a lower ice water content, so there were less ice in them essentially, mm. and they had and lower ice crystal number concentrations. So there were fewer crystals in the clouds. There was less ice, there were fewer crystals. And we also saw that if we looked at cloud fractions, so how much of the sky that's covered by cirrus clouds, it was less. So there was less cirrus clouds. The ones that were there had lower crystal uh, number concentrations and lower ice content, essentially. But when we looked at the southern hemisphere, we didn't see the same thing. We essentially didn't see at all Difference when there was more volcanic aerosol present in the lowermost stratosphere, and this was really surprising to us. We had only studied the northern hemisphere before and and seen a similar signal to what we saw in this study. So, and this is, I think, the first time anyone had seen that there would be a difference in the cirrus response to volcanic aerosols between the the two hemispheres. Essentially, I think that was my five minutes. So, I mean, we had we had to come up with a few mechanisms.
0: If you could just confirm the sign and also explain the origin of the effect that you saw.
1: Yeah. So when uh, when we had volcanic impact on uh, on the, the lowermost stratosphere in the northern hemisphere, there was less ice, lower ice crystal number concentration, and and lower cloud fraction. So we thought that either there is the clouds that are forming form less ice, or essentially the ice that are in the clouds are falling out faster, and Upon our reasoning, we found that we don't really see any reason why there would be less ice forming. So we thought that it's probably that the ice crystals that form are larger uh, and they fall out faster, essentially. And that's why we would see that there would be less ice in the clouds.
0: Well, that's, as far as I understand it, exactly what other people would expect and and have expected. So just to kind of praise your results, as I understand them, is that the the stratospheric aerosol particles that are falling into the troposphere act to strip the cirrus so there's an additional benefit Mm. so if 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 i understand that correctly could you try and enumerate that for us how much additional bang for your buck what's the kind of power up that we're getting on solar geoengineering or volcanic eruptions as a result of this stripping effect
1: well we saw that there was changes of around maybe 10 percent maximum when we looked at uh When we looked at the ice water content, for example, but, but the tricky thing with clouds is that because they have such a large radiative impact on, on the earth radiation balance, then you can get quite a lot of effect with only rather smaller changes to, to the clouds. But, but to be honest, I, we haven't done any modeling or done anything to estimate exactly how much this effect would contribute with. This is further, this is work further on that we will try to attempt.
0: Well, what I'm interested to know, let, let's say, for example, if I get 100 units of cooling from uh, a stratospheric, geo, so stratospheric geoengineering intervention, you don't know, we don't know how much it would be. Could you even guess?
1: No, I wouldn't even dare to guess, honestly.
0: Well, that's really frustrating because that's the answer I really wanted. <laughs> so if we wanted that answer, and I do, then how do we go about getting that an answer?
1: Well, I would say we would have to go to a model to get the answer of, of how much extra cooling we could get. But modeling serious clouds is really tricky as well, because we, because as I said before, we don't quite even know exactly how they form, whether it's homogeneous freezing or heterogeneous freezing. So it, it would be, it is rather tricky to try to, perhaps we could do some, as you could use some satellite instruments that measure, you know, radiation balance or so. But it's, it's, I think it would be rather small differences. So it might be a hard when it comes to, you know, signal to noise ratio. But, but my next plan is to try to model this and see whether we could get a effect, if we could get an estimate from the model.
0: So, what uh, in your studies did you find? Or did you get a result in watts per square meter or degrees of cooling or whatever from the volcanic effects? Or was it some more, was it, did you never convert it into a climate effect?
1: No, we never converted into climate effects, so I okay. I can't give you any numbers like that.
0: Oh, hence, hence not being drawn on my earlier question. Okay, fine. And you've quantified that a bit for us, but you haven't been able to give us a kind of climate quantification. Mm-hmm. Do I understand that correctly? Mm-hmm. So that yep, you, that's you're true. it's it there's a there's a cirrus stripping power up that you've helped us clarify that that exists, but you have been unable to give us climatic result on that. So. That's, yeah, um, and I that, think one of the tricky parts.
1: Today? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I want to try to do it in the future, but but of course, if if other people have good model, models and are willing to help to try to figure it out, then you know, I think that would be really interesting. But I think as well, one of the tricky part of the study is that we don't see the same effect in the southern hemisphere as we see in the northern hemisphere, and that's also one of the questions we have got to try to figure out. Why are they behaving differently, essentially?
0: Why well, um, do you think that is?
1: Well, we put forward two suggestions in the in the in the article. One of them would be that that if we there is more, you know, anthropogenic soot, aircraft soot in the northern hemisphere, and there's also more dust because we have more land areas in the northern hemisphere. So it could be that the clouds in the northern hemisphere form more through heterogeneous nucleation and through homogeneous nucleation. And in the southern hemisphere we would have more only homogeneous nucleation. But
0: surely that's um, the opposite the opposite effect thing because
1: yeah but what you know, we're thinking then is that these particles that come down from the stratosphere these you know liquid sulfuric acid particles so they could coat some of these ice nuclei that are in the upper troposphere so they would actually deactivate some of these uh, particles so they could not act as ice nuclei anymore
0: Oh, that's really interesting, but you're Mm -hmm. suggesting that these particles are coming down and then sticking to existing particles. Now, if you've got a hygroscopic particle that's sticking to an ice crystal, what is the mechanism by which that deactivation occurs? I mean, I would have thought that that becomes a more aggressive nucleation particle, but I guess that if it's a more aggressive nucleation particle, it's then full, it will fall down even faster, right? So if you have a load of, let's say, for example, if you have a big past, a particle that's relatively speaking the size of a basketball and then you've got a whole bunch of small cirrus geoengineering particles or aerosol acid particles that are falling uh, volcanic particles that are falling down that so they would potentially be more like grapes that coat this much larger particle and then um that it so it's it's the it's the existing cloud particles that are removing the cloud condensation nuclei not the other way around is that is that the mechanism that you're proposing?
1: Um, well, I mean, we proposed two mechanisms. This is one of them. And essentially, the the ice nuclei, uh, when they start forming an ice crystal, it's usually on like specific spots around it. So if you have a liquid that's coating the ice nuclei, it can actually have a harder time forming ice compared to if it's just a dry dust particle, for example. So that's why this coating, like the grapes that you were talking about, is, is a possible explanation. Uh, but then we also so that, suggested so
0: that, so it's almost like so. It's almost like cirrus clouds are stripping the descending nuclei, right? Rather than the nuclei are stripping the clouds, it's almost like the. No, clouds but I mean,
1: the... once the cirrus cloud forms, they are they are you know li- they are solid, they are ice crystals. So it'd be more that the the sulfate aerosol that hasn't frozen would coat the n- nuclei that would otherwise form the cirrus clouds, essentially. So that there would be fewer of them to form the cirrus clouds, and then they would get the crystals would get larger and fall out faster.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I get the mechanism. So what you're saying is that in principle, each of these sort of basketball-sized cloud condensation nuclei or cloud cloud particles could then end up sweeping up tens or even hundreds of these potential proto nuclei that are falling down from the stratosphere. And and if if the uh, so why would that effect be different in different hemispheres? I mean, why why would that
1: because process. we wouldn't have
0: the basketballs in the Southern Hemisphere. Right. Okay. So that because there's more dust in the Northern Hemisphere, the cloud particles can form more readily. And so the, when, they're, when, they're, when there are existing clouds, then if the particles fall into existing clouds, the clouds remove the particles. Whereas if they form into just air where there's no cloud there at the moment, in very clean air, then they're much more effective at triggering the formation of the cloud particles, right?
1: Yeah and I mean the, the thing is as well if you have if, if you have a cloud that forms through heterogeneous nucleation then you're going to have a few large crystals because they started growing on these basketballs. but if you have a cloud forming through homogeneous nucleation you're going to have a lot more smaller ice crystals so kind of the properties of of the clouds will be very different depending on on which type of uh, of the nucleation mechanisms they form th- form through initially so if we say that the northern hemispheric clouds form on these ice nuclei, which have, you know, few large crystals, and then we remove some of the basketballs because we are coating them with grapes, then we will get even fewer larger crystals in those clouds, essentially. That's one of the mechanisms we're proposing.
0: Okay, whereas in the southern hemisphere, you might actually get the opposite effect, and you might be forming new cirrus clouds rather than stripping old ones, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you would probably, or maybe not change them very much at all because you still have kind of the liquid uh So, sulfuric acid droplets that freeze homogeneously essentially.
0: Well that is quite surprising and I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about that and getting (laughs) my head around it. I think we could do with a a pricey. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's going to be mulling that one over again, so could you just re-explain the last sort of five or ten minutes of conversation in a a succinct summary for those of us who weren't Clever enough, or possibly even the li- the listeners who weren't concentrating while they were doing the washing <laughs> up or driving their car, because that's a really important message. Just just separate out for us how you think the uh, southern and northern hemisphere differ in terms of our grapes and basketballs analogy.
1: All right, so I will I will we have this one explanation mechanisms, and I will repeat it, and we have another one as well that that I'll try to explain afterwards. But okay, so let's say that if we have more basketballs, ice nuclei as we call them, in the northern hemisphere. The cirrus clouds there would form on these solid particles and because they're quite few, then the cirrus clouds would have few large crystals. While the cirrus clouds in the southern hemisphere, they, uh, there are no basketballs or ice nuclei present so they would form through the freezing of the grapes essentially of these uh, liquid sulfuric acid particles. So there would be many small ice crystals in the clouds in the Southern Hemisphere, and then there would be a few large ones in the ones in the Northern Hemisphere.
0: So what so we thought... must be quite easy to measure. I mean, like, if you have in the Northern Hemisphere, you should be able to see that the particles in the cirrus clouds are much larger. So are they genuinely much larger in the Northern Hemisphere, or is that just a, a speculation that we've made that's not backed up by any evidence?
1: We haven't really had such long measurements of of uh, of ice crystal sizes in cirrus clouds per se because they are hard to study with the satellites i think there are some indications in some studies that we are seeing this but but it's also as you said there's natural variability and then we don't have the dust aerosol everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. It's, it's more in specific location over land. So over the oceans, the clouds might look more like those in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's it's hard to know. And it's also because we don't know whether the soot particles also act as, as ice nuclei. It's We aren't exactly certain whether, you know, uh, if this is the case, that the clouds generally form through heterogeneous nucleation in the Northern Hemisphere and homogeneously in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, what we what we thought can happen in the Northern Hemisphere was that the, the sulfate aerosol that comes down could then coat some of these basket bullets or ice nuclei. And then there would be even fewer ice crystals in those clouds and they would get larger and they would fall down faster. So that was one of the mechanisms that we proposed. If you have energy to listen to another explanation mechanism, I can put through the second one.
0: We've always got energy to listen to more mechanisms on this <laughs> podcast.
1: Okay, so in the other mechanisms, we are assuming that clouds are forming through homogeneous nucleation, both in the northern hemisphere and in the southern hemisphere, because we are kind of a, we are very high up, and there might not be that many dust particles reaching that area, and the soot might not work as ice nuclei properly. So let's say that both in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere, the clouds form through homogeneous nucleation. Um, but what then happens when we have More sulfur aerosol coming down could be that uh, the sulfur reacts with ammonia and we would form, and ammonium sulfate, which would form, uh, is a solid crystal and that could act as an ice nuclei. So we would change during the periods when we have more volcanic aerosol, we could change the nucleation mechanism from homogeneous to heterogeneous in the north. We assume that the clouds form through homogeneous nucleation in the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere. But what could happen is that when we have um, sulfate aerosol coming down from these volcanic eruptions, they could react with ammonia and form ammonium sulfate. And ammonium sulfate becomes a salt, and it's actually a crystal rather than liquid. So these crystals can act as ice nuclei. So when they would fall to the cirrus clouds, they would change the, the freezing mechanism from... Uh, homogeneous to heterogeneous. So we would have few large crystals instead of many small crystals. And the same but, thing would well, not happen... Ammonium in this...
0: Sulfate, well, this ammonium sulphate, surely it should be evident. I mean, like it's a chemical that you could detect. One imagine, one would imagine relatively easily. But I don't think it degrades readily when you take it back down. It's not like a complex molecule, is it? So surely we know whether ammonium sulphate exists.
1: Well, the issue is that if you sample aerosols at that height... And then bring them back down to the surface to look at them when where there's a lot of ammonia present then the sulfate will react with the ammonia and we wouldn't know if it was if it was already ammonium sulfate up there but there are some measurements now being done so this is one of the things that i would like to look at further but at the moment we don't know whether whether these volcanic eruptions would form ammonium sulfate or not essentially
0: exist in these clouds or not right well that's fascinating so Talk me through this ammonium sulfate mechanism. I and mean, is is this something that we could play with? Is this something we can manipulate?
1: I, I don't think we quite know because ammonium sulfate has been found in labs to kind of be an ice nuclei, serious relevant convi- conditions, but whether it would actually act like that in the uh, in the upper troposphere is is still unknown essentially.
0: So does your if, if that ammonium mechanism is correct, then what do your results imply would be the effect of having ammonia in these clouds because in the northern hemisphere you're getting this stripping effect so talk me through i should be clever enough to work this out for myself but i can't
1: no but essentially talk me through um we have more ammonia in the northern hemisphere than in the southern hemisphere so the reason we wouldn't see it in the southern hemisphere is essentially that we don't have ammonia in the upper troposphere in the southern hemisphere there are less emissions in the southern hemisphere Uh, and and you know yes so the what would happen if we would have ammonium sulfate is that instead of the clouds forming homogeneously, they would form heterogeneously. They would get a few large ice crystals instead of many small, and that would, you know, produce the results that we saw in the study. That there was less ice and fewer. So particles. the
0: ammonium. So the so the ammonium sulfate is the presence of ammonia making forming more particles or fewer particles.
1: Mm, well, it's essentially. Uh, Changing the particles from liquid to solid—that's the important part because ammonium sulfate would be solid, could be solid particles essentially.
0: And and how? And why does that make a difference? Is it just does it just change how readily ice forms on them? Yeah, I mean, ice ice nuclei
1: have to be solid if you want an ice nuclei that would act as and produce heterogeneous nucleation. They have to be solid the particles. So it would. The volcanic particles would become solid instead of being liquid, just sulfuric acid and water,
0: essentially. Yeah, but I mean, as I understand it, what happens normally is that these particles will, they grow in the liquid phase and then they freeze when there's, I mean, normally when you mix stuff into water, it reduces the freezing point, right? So salt Mm. on the road melts the ice on the road. And I would imagine you get a similar effect with the sulfuric acid so that as you add sulfuric acid, the concentration of uh, water that's required to freeze at any given temperature would be much higher you have to add much more water to dilute out the sulfuric acid to make it freeze at a given temperature and so that sort of like late freezing is what I think is happening but what you're saying I think is that the ammonium particles are solid and so you get this like direct kind of sublimation so like a reverse sublimation of the particle so that the ice forms directly on the ammonium sulfide particle.
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, we're also talking about that at a certain temperature, then different things will freeze at different, you know, relative humidity with respect to ice. So the the ice nuclei, they generally freeze at a lower relative humidity with respect to ice. So if you have, uh, you know, some sort of ice nuclei, then they will freeze before the homogeneous freezing occurs. And then the homogeneous freezing won't occur because... the the ice nuclei that has initiated the freezing will eat up all the vapor essentially
0: is that correct okay you're gonna have to run that on past me again i don't like asking to repeat stuff but i just (laughs) didn't quite get that so this is these are new concepts right so most of the stuff that we cover on the show are covered in some form or another but you're properly stretching my brain here yeah and not in true reviewer two fashion I'm not really capable of reviewing the paper that I'm doing, (laughs) but I've got to fake it. And you're seeing this faking mechanism in real time here. So run that one past me again and see if I can get it.
1: I mean, I should say that, you know, this was twisting my head quite a bit before I managed to put it into the paper as well. So this is, you know, fairly advanced, uh, yeah, fairly advanced cloud microphysics, but essentially, if you have certain temperature, then it's the same thing as when you form a liquid droplet you need to reach a certain supersaturation before the liquid droplet forms so imagine the same thing except that we are at minus 45 degrees so you have to have a certain uh, relative humidity with respect to ice before the ice crystals freeze essentially and or the the droplets freeze so if you have a ice nuclei present then you can have ice formation onto the dust particle or the soot particle or the ammonium sulfate particle at a lower relative humidity with respect to ice, compared to if you want to freeze the water's sulfuric acid solution droplets. So essentially, if you have a basketball present, then that's going to freeze before the grapes have a chance to freeze. And then only the basketball will continue to grow and actually form ice crystals. So the sulfuric acid uh, droplets aren't going to freeze, essentially.
0: So what you're basically saying is that the ammonium sulfate, if that exists in the cloud, will be more hygroscopic than the sulfuric acid droplets because they can attract and stabilize the water as ice at lower temperature. It pulls the water out from the vapor preferentially because it's a solid and therefore it's a lower energy state for the ice to freeze on the ammonium sulfate than it would be to fuse on a sulfur, sulfuric acid droplet
1: yeah so that implies
0: that there's a kind of rate a ratio between these things so when i when when you were talking about this earlier i kind of assumed it was like 100 percent ammonium sulfate or 100 percent sulfuric acid but you're saying that potentially you could have a small amount of ammonium sulfate particles in the sulfuric acid cloud but that small kind of doping amount will still preferentially attract the particles the water to form these large particles so this ammonium mm-hmm. sulfate potentially acts as a very very effective stripping nuclei mm-hmm. because it has a lower energy state um than a lot basically it's preferentially hygroscopic because it's less energetically intensive for the um vapor to condense mm-hmm. out an ammonium sulfate particle
1: yeah
0: is that correct yeah. wow i've got my head around it yay <laughs> uh, so so what you're basically saying is, by adding a bit of ammonia, or, or or doing this experiment in a place where there already is ammonia, then you're kind of yeah. getting an enormously greater bang for your buck.
1: Yeah, kind of. That could be that could be the explanation mechanism. We don't know. We need to investigate this further. But yes, uh, that's, that's really, one of the. Yeah, you're teasing
0: with the me with your great like this is really fascinating stuff. But but then you're uh, you're you're then telling us that we almost know the thing that you want to know, but not quite. But so if. <laughs> Let's assume that you're right with this ammonium stuff. So how can we make more ammonium sulphate? I mean, could we, ammoni- could we use ammonium sulphate for geoengineering?
1: I actually don't know. I, haven't, you know. I haven't considered whether we would put both. I mean...
0: Well, let's consider it right here, right now on the podcast. Could we okay. make ammonium sulphate aerosols? Because if they do this great job of serious stripping, then surely you'd want to do that instead of using stratospheric sulphur aerosols. The other mm-hmm. advantage of using ammonium sulphate would be that the... Ammonium sulfate would be stable in terms of its droplet size, right? So uh, you wouldn't have this problem that you've got with uh, aerosols growing by condensation. because No, I
1: mean, they would grow by condensation as well. Like, that's what aerosols, you know. Ammonium
0: sulfate is a solid, right? So if you use ammonium sulfate solid aerosols, they could only grow by collision coalescence. They couldn't grow by condensation.
1: Yeah, but the question is whether they would be solid all the way up into the stratosphere as well. I don't know, because, I mean, you have to think about if you want the stratospheric effect from the particles, if you only want the serous effect on the particles. But, but perhaps you could release ammonia together with, with SO2 in the stratosphere, and, and that might form different particles. But, yeah, I, I don't know.
0: And, and what are the optical effects of ammonia? Oh, ammonium sulfate would, would would they still work as geoengineering particles or not
1: i think they would reflect radiation similar to sulfuric acid particles but,
0: but. i mean there's the reason that we would use uh, the the scattering so you have a scattering effect don't you from um, so you have forward scattering and back scattering mm-hmm. and i've never i've never understood the physics behind the scattering effect i need to get somebody on the podcast to explain this to me because i feel like a right idiot i don't understand this but the the scattering effect sulfuric acid they're not great i think like titania and calcium carbonate it's got much better scattering properties but sulfuric acid is sort of seen as being environmentally benign because we already have it in the stratosphere mm. but so do you know anything about the scattering of ammonium sulfate or not
1: no i mean scattering is very much dependent on size as well of the particles so yeah, it is, um,
0: but it's also dependent on the actual material so do you know anything yeah. about no i wouldn't know that no not. Oh, no so you've come on a podcast you've told us a load of amazing stuff and then you told us that we, we need further research. So just to recap, we don't what we don't know, all of the fascinating things that you've told us um, uh, you don't know are we don't know the scattering properties of ammonium sulphate and therefore we don't know whether we could use it directly for geoengineering use. We don't know the size distribution of ice particles in cirrus clouds between the northern and southern hemisphere and whether that's making a difference in terms of the mechanisms you're using. You've told us that you don't know whether it's a, the difference between the northern and southern hemisphere is caused by the uh, aerosols that are falling out of the stratosphere, sticking to existing ice crystals, or whether you whether it's an ammonium sulfate effect that's triggering this differential condensation on a small number of ammonium sulfate particles that's giving this very strong stripping effect. Is there are there any uh, are there any other things that I have uh, pulled you up on for We don't know the climatic effect of any of this either because you've only modelled the cloud microphysics. You haven't modelled the climatic effects. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, we don't even know, you know, which way serious clouds form through homogeneous or heterogeneous. Life. Okay.
0: Well, in true reviewer two fashion, then, I'm going to reject your paper for posing such so many unanswered questions which are are truly fascinating and reviewer two is going to demand that you solve all unanswered questions in the area of cloud aerosol microphysics for cirrus clouds before he's going to pass your paper. So if you could finish a 20 year research program on your own and then come back with a single paper that encompasses all unknown questions in the field, reviewer two will be very happy to pass it. But unfortunately, until then, you'll be leaving our studio, virtual though it is, with the Reviewer 2's virtual bootprint on your backside having done more to indulge his curiosity rather than to satisfy it. So that is a a frustrating end to a fascinating podcast episode. And we only hope that you can come back and see us again when you have solved all of the outstanding problems in your discipline.
1: Okay, thank you very much.
0: Thanks for coming on.